welcome to series three of my podcast innovation where we get to hear stories and experiences of incredible women from science and technology not only will you get insights into some fascinating innovations that they've worked on but you may also even relate to their stories especially if you are a little bit unconventional or non-conforming as with all science and technology what these women do for a living has a real impact on all of our lives and we don't often realize it, but here on Innovation, I'm also giving women a platform for them to be heard and for us to be inspired and uplifted by what they've learned along their life's journeys, both personally and professionally. This week, I talked to Samantha Hugh, director of ADHD Girls. I am Samantha Hugh. I am the founder and director of a company called ADHD Girls. And I have a dual mission to empower girls and women with ADHD to thrive in society and to improve society's understanding of neurodiversity. And I identify predominantly as a storyteller and a scientist, having worked in 16 work sectors um, that began from the age of 16 and, you know, carried on after my PhD as well in science, where I further explored other careers outside of science. And yeah, here I am today, you know, at the age of 41, <laughs> by, um, creating a company that, you know, is based on my own diagnosis of ADHD later in life. Wow. Okay, so uh, there's a lot to discuss in a short space of time. So, <laughs> um, should we start with uh, your particular area of expertise, like what you did your PhD in? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I did my PhD in cancer research from like um, the age of 15. I was really obsessed about, you know, stories of people surviving cancer and, you know, the families, um, lives that are intertwined and the reassessment of your life priorities after you recover from cancer. You know, it's like a second chance. And, you know, for me at the time, I, I just thought, you know, that is such a meaningful you know, thing to put my energy into and my career into. And that like began almost like a decade, like over a decade long obsession to study um, cancer research. So I come from Malaysia uh, where uh, I didn't really have the means to, you know, uh, fund myself to study abroad. So I had to work really hard, which is a bit of a paradox considering that I have ADHD and it was so difficult anyway to really focus. And at one point I nearly failed, you know, all my papers and my teachers were wondering what was wrong with me. And I couldn't understand, I couldn't explain it. But then, you know, I talked about having a charismatic adult in your life who really kind of, you know, just, just tell you the things that you need to hear and, you know, this changed like the course of my life, you know, and this person happened to be my biology teacher, who was perfect. And uh, she encouraged me and, you know, coming from an Asian background, education was so important. And everyone, you know, put such emphasis on, you know, education and getting a really good job and getting the respect in your society. You know, so that was all, you know, I, I thought my life path was, you know, I was gonna become a scientist and I'm gonna cure cancer. And, you know, I'm going to be happy. So um, I got a scholarship from the prime minister uh, to come to the UK to do my postgraduate. And that's when everything just kind of unraveled. <laughs> and um, I didn't really um, manage to stay on course with my master's and my PhD. Although, 
you know, I, I, I did graduate, but it was a really tough journey because once I got to the UK, there were so many things to, you know, to, to, to deal with that were new, you know, so many things that, you know, even the student life for someone who has been so sheltered her whole life is such a revelation. And I only got to this stage at the age of 24. And so very later on, I wanted to make, make up for lost time. You know, all the times that I spent studying so hard in Malaysia, when I came to the UK, I wanted to experience life, you know, just know what it's like to truly live. And, and that, that I did. Um, and even though, you know, I was still interested in my PhD, I uh, was working on two different types of research for cancer. One of it was to look into childhood leukemia and another was um, to look into cervical cancer in women. And the reason there were two very distinct and different topic areas was because um, I had a lot of issues with um, my supervisor at the time who took a liking to me in more ways than I can imagine. And, and so, yeah, that began a very difficult time and eventually uh, ended up with me filing a, section, a sexual harassment you know, case against him, which um, I kind of won and he got fired. And, and because of that, I had to think about a different you know, subject to cover. Uh, to, to finish my PhD and, and people at the time were saying to me halfway through my PhD imagine two and a half years into it and they say why don't you just not do it and just give up you know just leave and it's just unthinkable you know when you get to that stage and just thought like you know being an Asian as well so much rest on that you're finishing what you do you know because hard work is so important above all else and yeah so from then on I just kind of went into crisis mode and you know worked really hard despite not really knowing how to do it and I didn't really have a very encouraging new supervisor and um, yeah I just had to find my own way and it was really incredibly difficult time which I actually never talked about publicly until now because I think I am ready and yeah so uh, in the end I pulled through you know I proved everyone wrong but then that kind of just you know, like it was the peak of just me having enough of, of, of this whole career in science, despite wanting to do so much. You know, I learned that there's so much consistency that involved in creating the reproducible experiments time and time again within research. And if you can't produce consistent results, then you can't trust your own results, right? And the papers that you publish require you to produce these results at least three or five times in order to say that that's real. And, you know, even though that I, I managed to do it within my PhD, but I just thought, you know, I don't have it in me. And now I know that having the ADHD brain and, you know, not being able to be consistent. In fact, I thrive on being inconsistent, you know, plus the political scene within science that frankly was dominated by males you know on on top and it just wasn't family friendly you know I couldn't imagine having the life that I have now as a mom and you know being able to choose my hours and still work out how to go into the lab to feed myself and yeah so there were so many things that just didn't you know align with what I thought my life would work out to be if I took that path as a cancer research scientist so I finished my PhD 
at the age of 30. Imagine being at the age of 30 when like you look at everyone, you think, you know, I should be able to be like, you know, up here now in my career, you know, as a director or somewhere, but then I had to start again. <laughs> That's when at the age of 30, I decided, right, I'm going to be a writer. You know, I'm going to write about healthcare. I'm going to write about anything. So yeah, that's when I started exploring various different sectors, you know, from travel writing, healthcare writing, impact writing, um, commercial modeling, presenting as well. Um, um, just anything. I started a soft furnishing business. So yeah, there was just, I was lost for a really long time. And I think that's the existential anxiety that I talked about in a panel that I was on recently that I didn't know what to do with myself. And, and, and with that comes like a period of depression as well, you know, that, that, that kind of takes over between every transition, between the jobs that I would try and see if that would be what I, you know, wanted to do. And frankly, yes, that um, lasted for so long. I had children, you know, one, one child, and then didn't really dare to have another child because that would take another you know, how, however long that it takes to grow your child until you feel safe enough to leave them. Yeah. So um, that, that's, that's me really. I mean, yeah, the last 10 years. And then I founded a company and now I just feel like I'm in the right place. You know, I'm, I'm putting together all the experiences that I had and these experiences were valuable and people resonated with them because they're not built on perfectionism. They are built on a lot of the failures that I've had and, you know, the trouble of always feeling like an outsider so yeah that's me <laughs> in a nutshell no I mean Samantha first of all there's there's just so much in what you've just described um and it's really interesting to kind of listen to how things unfolded and developed um, and 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 I'm wondering how much of that is because um, you're in a minority you know I wonder how much of your story was a consequence of you know being born and raised in Malaysia mm-hmm. um, Big shout out to Malaysians, by the way. I'm half Malaysian. Oh, um, wow. Awesome. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> yeah, so put it there. Um, and yeah, like just kind of really relating to this idea of um, education being first and foremost. That was also in my family. The education was the top priority and education was the gateway to making something of your life being a valid citizen, um, you know, and, and, and so there's so much in what you've just described that we probably, you know, could spend hours chatting about. Um, and first of all, thank you for being so honest about your story, um, because it's not easy to recount some of the experiences you've been through. Um, but it's really beautiful to hear that you know, the result is this company that you founded and you're bringing together all your experiences, good and bad, to, to do something that you feel is aligned with your purpose. Yeah, definitely. Um, so on that note, then, can we just define what ADHD is, first of all, so we all are on the same page? 
Sure. Yeah. So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is what they have named uh, this uh, neurodiverse experience. And it's a is a misnomer is a misnomer. And they have named it in a way that so many people who are late diagnosed do not identify with it. And that's one of the reasons why we're late diagnosed. So the predominant uh, traits that you get with ADHD is that um, you're hyperactive, impulsive, inattentive. And this, if you were to refer to your idea, what you know, and what most people know from how media has perpetuated this stigma is that you see this naughty white boy, you know, in the class, very disruptive, you know, like this can't stop jumping around and disturbing everyone and like just really chatty but the uh, the reality is that in women it looks very different you know and especially when you bring in a cultural and a racial perspective into it and that's because as you know you know in our society it is so important to respect the elders and to do as you're told Asian Asian children certainly when I grew up were seen but not heard you know you don't interrupt when you're your elders are talking and you respect your teachers because they have such a pinnacle, you know, in, in, in society. And so, yeah, that, that, that is one of the reasons why so many women with ADHD flew under the radar. Um, from 2019 to 2021, there was a 3,200% increase in women coming to look for uh, a diagnosis in ADHD. And that is causing a massive bottleneck in diagnosis and referral within the UK. And so ADHD, in a nutshell, people want to change the name from attention deficit to like, there is a new uh, proposal for a name called variable attention stimulus trait. So in a sense that you have more than enough attention, right? It's just that you may not be able to focus on one thing at any one time because um, they've shown that the mind wandering part of the brain, the, the seat of your imagination and creativity, you know, causes your persistent pull away from what you're focusing, what, what, what you're doing when the task doesn't interest you. And that's why girls with ADHD, even though they might be distracted, they might do it quietly, they might look out the window, they might not just, you know, listen to the teacher because they're find, finding other things to stimulate their brain. You know, so that's, um, yeah, ADHD. And, and why I suppose someone like me who was born in an Asian culture never really even hear or even know about ADHD enough, you know, was only diagnosed when I read about it um, in my late 30s. I mean, I wouldn't want to sort of project my own stuff onto you, but when I hear you uh, describing your experiences, I really relate um, to your story because of being an unrepresented Um, women of colour in a very male-dominated world. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't want to project my stuff onto you. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) It's just, sharing. I'm relating to your story because I just feel like so much of my lost years, um, because I also, you know, I did my PhD as well, and it was kind of, you know, it was trying to tick that box of like education, um, like just get that done because then the parents and the the, the cultural expectations will be met. Um, but, you know, after I finished my doctorate, I spent a lot of tr- tr- time trying to find my way. Like, 
you know, in the same way that it sounds like you did, um, you know, experimenting with a little bit of this and a little bit of that and like, oh, I'm not so good at this or that doesn't suit me so well. And, and eventually finding our way. I mean, both of our stories is like, we're now doing what we really want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and how have you experienced um, finding your purpose? I mean, what, what's, what does it feel like to find your way? Gosh, it is amazing, especially when it took so long. You know, I like all these different explorations, the different things that you're doing, trying to see if it fits or if it lights you up. And maybe it did at a time, but it didn't do it long enough, right, to, to sustain. But when you find something that truly lights you up and you feel like you're being given the permission to thrive, you know, and you have a voice all of a sudden, you know, that thing that you're talking about, about how um, you finish your PhD and you take a box, you know, that wasn't like just accidental so many women in our culture feel like that and I had to google it recently because I, I heard on a podcast that the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is different for the Asian culture and I didn't know that before because I was looking at that and I'm thinking that's not really me you know how we need to feel safe we need to feel belong and then you know we can go on to fulfill our potential but the Asian's hierarchy of needs is very much like around, you know, yeah, feeling safe, providing for your family, but also affiliation instead of belonging. And then to achieve the top part of the tier is actually about status and respect, you know, and that was so important in an Asian culture. And I suppose that's why many people would rather be in the, you know, really good job, although they might slowly, you know, the soul might be eroding inside, but it was enough just to have that respect and that status, you know, I'm sure you feel or you've encountered the same, you know, so like our parents would tell us so-and-so's, you know, son is working in Microsoft, you know, so-and-so's son is in a bank, banker, engineer, you know, like, like, like yourself and uh, scientist is okay, but doctor, you know, like, it's just like, wow, you know, these guys have made it, right? Are they happy? We don't know, <laughs> no, but if their parents are happy, if they're being talked about as being respected, then maybe that was enough. You know, for a lot of people. I mean, this is such an important subject and it never gets talked about, um, which is because I must say, even just hearing you speak in your accent um, does transport me to my mum's side of the family, who's Malaysian. And I can already feel, I can hear their voices of like, no, but you should be doing this and look at the daughter of that friend. And, you know, that relative is, as you say, has become a doctor and went to Oxford and Cambridge. And even at my age, um, I still get moments where people ask me, um, oh, so what did you study? And then I proudly say mechanical engineering. And then I tell them that I did my doctorate. And then they say, which university? And I went to Brunel, which is obviously not like the top whatever in the world. And I get this pang of like, oh, my gosh, what I did wasn't good enough. Um, and, it, and it haunts me today that there are so many labels and so many um, sort of like accomplishments that are world renowned. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't fulfill those, then you're kind of less than. So I guess basically there's this constant feeling 
of being less than and a lot of my lost years or my years of being lost was fighting against that sense of like oh I'm a disappointment I'm a disappointment I'm a dis-. and I don't know whether you found this um oh. but it's like I got to a point where I actually just accepted myself for who I am and it coincided with finding the work that I love to do mm-hmm. do you experience that yeah um I think I had to find my way from being very far away from those voices that tell me you know to stick to what society expected of you you know and I don't know why but at the time when I was choosing a university to go to I chose the one furthest away from home and like to this day I think my parents only visited me to once and um, maybe I did that unknowingly because I knew that I wanted to look for a life for myself but of course you it's only possible to see that in hindsight you know at the time you know it definitely felt like completely anxiety provoking and, and and everything else that came with it um so so yeah what was your question again <laughs> I, I I know I was getting there and your question was around well I think you've answered it in the sense that I wanted to know whether you experienced um yeah finding your purpose but you just said something that was so fascinating it's like finding yourself um and 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 needing to be detached from where you came from in order to find yourself or actually even create yourself yeah Um, I just wanted to expand on that because let's just say now you've created a good sense of who you are and what you want to do how have you found people's reaction to it? Because, you know, we've had our parents' reaction, our cultural reactions and everything, but you're living in a very different culture. So now that you've found yourself, how is it being where you are, you know, in terms of how people are receiving what you're doing? Yeah, so so that's really interesting because since I founded this company, I haven't been back home, you know, but I've talked to my parents, you know, basically I've chosen to do something that is really stigmatized in the Asian culture, you know, and can you imagine like being the director of a company like um, and, and openly talk about your ADHD, you know, and in the Asian culture, it's pretty much a mental illness, right? And they don't know enough about it. You know, it's in the same line as, you know, when your brain isn't right, but you know, that is why I want to change things. You know, even within this scene, I set up this company within the UK and being probably the only Asian woman in the UK to head up a company helping women with ADHD. And most of the people who come to my workshop are Caucasian women, you know, and I try to, you know, put the word out that actually I offer bursary too to my workshops because I want to help as many people as possible. But I feel like it's not reaching because they don't feel safe to go where they're not represented, you know? So because of that, I'm starting an intersectionality campaign because I've seen that the people who shape the narratives in the room within neurodiversity, the ones who influence the media and and public perception of neurodiversity don't really have enough representation, you know? And, 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 And so I'm dealing with a lot, you know, by doing this and actually openly talking about my culture and my beginning is something that I've made such a conscious effort to hide for so many years because why do you want to stick out to be different you know but then you come to a point to realize that your difference is your power 
you know, and your difference is really the thing that is going to help you own it in life. Because, you know, all the things that you grapple with with yourself, you know, it is for a reason that you got to this point in creating your own place like you have, you know, you created your own place, despite what your parents, your upbringing, you know, your culture has told you, you made your own place and you're great at it. You know, whether it's Brunel or UCL or Harvard, you know, they were lucky to have you, right? Why do we have to associate ourselves with this label or, or like a name or an institution? when you are bigger than that, you know, and I'm all about creating your own doors because believe it or not, I didn't actually manage to do any of the things I'm doing without doing that first because those doors were not open to me. In fact, they were guarded by people who have been in the field for decades and they're very skeptical of those who have come, you know, new and trying to, yeah, create something different and fresh. Oh my God, this conversation is so important. Um, And it's just not had. Uh, People don't speak this way. And I'm just so, I feel so privileged that we can have this conversation because um, what we're talking about is often kind of disregarded as... um, Oh, it's because you're crazy. Oh, it's because you're 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 messed up. You're you're broken. Um, you're traumatized. You're um, there's something wrong with you. You know. And and actually, when I listen to you, I'm seeing someone who is hugely intelligent. You know, you you speak with so much authority in science because I mean, you've studied it, you've researched it, you've qualified in it. So you know. You have the the academic knowledge to back up what you're saying, but you also have this rare experience of um, people who are raised in environments that are not their roots. Um, and this is something because I'm I you know I was born in London and raised. Um, in the UK and you know I've always had relationships with people who are from where I'm where I live you know and um, there's never really any discussion about the impact um, that has had on individuals who grow up or are raised with a different culture but live in a completely different culture. And so the idea of doors being guarded by mm-hmm. people with a certain mentality that is not your own is such an important thing to highlight because it really has such a significant impact on people's well-being. Definitely. And I, I hear in you someone who um has so much light within them, so much to give to the world, but has been crushed by the environment you've grown up in. Yeah, it's, yeah. And and, and that's why I said it was so important that each of us have that charismatic adult in our lives that can help us, you know, because very early on when I have all these turbulent thoughts and intense emotions in my head, there was nowhere to go except 
to write them down in a journal. And I kept so many diaries over the years and they have come in useful now because the way I write now is so emotive. I, I've, I've written a column and now I have a LinkedIn newsletter that some people say have made them cry. You know, and, and I think it's from the early years practice of actually crying myself into my diary. And yeah, so having that and also, you know, the, someone in your life to actually champion you. And very early on, I had that person and there were several others after they see my determination, you know? So when you start like, you know, really creating this like resource around you, I had to find them in books when I didn't have them, definitely not in my household. And I remember putting loads of motivational quotes in front of me on my wall because I could not fail. Because if I did fail, my life would never change. You know, and so I knew very early on that I was going to leave, you know, Malaysia at some point. I didn't know when. And I finally did at the age of 24. That was my first time on a plane. <laughs> you know, it's almost unthinkable to say that because these days you have people traveling when they're babies. Yeah, so first time on a plane at age of 24 and cried my eyes out, arrived in the UK and had to adjust to a different culture completely, which took a lot of time. And yeah, so experiencing you know, that in nearly every place that I go to, I am the minority, but yet I don't feel that different from them in the mind. Because like you say, you know, if you're intelligent, like you know that you have so much thought and so much to give and so much in your head, right? And you don't feel that, you don't feel lower than other people. You know, you feel equal, but then you don't understand why, you know, again and again, there are obstacles, especially when you're an entrepreneur. You know, people don't necessarily say yes to you the first time or the second time or the third time. And then you wonder, what are they looking at? <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I, I look out and I always see the same type of people because that's the rooms that, you know, we are working with these days. And then I didn't realize that when they look at me, okay, they see someone who's in a minority. And with that comes some unconscious bias, right? Um, you're Asian, you know, why don't you come and work for me instead of, creating your own things the number of people have asked me to work for them since I started my company is amazing but I I tried that I went back to work and I decided that no I can't I have to do my own thing I just have to accept that now and yeah so so much more at peace with that when I realized that and I told you before that I had to create doors for myself and I'm doing it again but I'm creating doors for myself now and hopefully for more people you know because I feel like I have a platform now to talk and people are listening and my audience are in the majority. So if I can, you know, bring some of these stories in a way that people connect to it, because people won't connect to something unless they feel like it's speaking to them, about them. And that's why so much of what I do is about finding commonality between people. And then within the commonality, you help them see the differences. You know, because ultimately, right, when you say we are people of color, the original Neanderthal were colored, the dark, dark skin, just because we all went to different parts of the world to, you know, put our roots down and we, you know, eventually developed different colors, but we were all from the same ancestors, aren't we? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned something earlier, which was so powerful, which was, you know, initially you saw yourself as different and therefore um, somehow unaffiliated 
but then you realize there was so much power in your difference. And I think that is going to be the greatest take home message from our conversation is the fact that um, difference should be celebrated because I see in you someone that's got so many interesting, unusual things to give to society, so much wisdom as a result of being different. And I wouldn't want you to hold back in, in giving that out. Um, and so in you, I see someone who is different and that's what makes you so special. Um, and, and, and recognizing that in you gives me a chance of recognizing it in me. Um, and we are different, you know, as, as uh, kind of people from different cultures, we are, we are different and that's not wrong. It's just different and beautiful. Um, I'm also really curious to know your experiences in juggling um, the different aspects of being an, a woman, because a woman today is um, expected to not just have babies, but to do many other things. And it sounds like you are doing many other things. So how do you juggle all that? I don't. I mean, I've got to admit that um, I am not very good at multitasking, despite thinking that I was. So um, very early on in my new parenthood, I had to give up full-time work in order to be a parent. And then I didn't really dare to have a second child until, you know, it just felt like, okay, it's silly now not, not, not to have a friend for our oldest girl. So yeah, so there's, there's an age difference between the both of them of five years. But then after that, as soon as my son was born, I just felt like, oh God, I can't take another six years off. You know, like I, I did freelance work, but not building my career because the intensity that I have within me, I had to channel it to something. Otherwise I get depressed. You know, there's so many explanations for that, whether it's an autistic special interest or that I've just always needed to have a mission or something to hold on to. And I, I came across this book called Living with Intensity. That's so interesting. Like with, within it, there was a quote that I identified with in that this woman, she, like, she was worried about how she would channel the same intensity that she has for her work, you know, with also looking after her family and, and her children because she doesn't know how to do both. And that, that is me. Since I started this company, my, my children have seen me in front of the computer, you know, even late at night, more times that they care to count. And I asked my daughter to describe me with five words recently. And one of it was busy, you know, and she said it with trepidation as well. Like she doesn't want to like, you know, make me upset that I, I said, it's fine. It's okay for you to say that, you know, but yeah. So it is hard to juggle this, um, the role that we've been given and it is only possible if you can get some help and support and for me like I have a husband who doesn't mind taking a step back sometimes and he said to me that it's your time now because you took that time off but then he still does it with a bit of like you know this is controlled <laughs> like you know because ultimately there's the role that society has placed on men and women there's the expectations and for men who actually take a step back to become you know, full-time parent as well, they have to deal with, you know, some anxieties themselves, you know, the, 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 the image that they're giving out, you know, to society and 
and to the neighbors. So it is not perfect, but we hopefully will get there. And I think one of the ways of doing that is to actually creating your own place so that you can have a say in your own hours, you know, and, and like do things that interest you and lights you up, you know. And, and I think for me now in this place is probably the most ideal situation that I can have for my, you know, um, yeah, my, my situation. And having a coach that keeps me accountable as well for some well-being time and work-life balance, which I struggle so much with, that I literally have a calendar now where I, you know, highlight the bit where I'm not going to work. I'm going to spend time with my children and then the bit where I'm going to work and it's going okay, you know, but it's not perfect. So yeah, with, with problems, you know, juggling this expectation on of the role of women in society, that's the answer I have. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like uh, you found your own sort of balance because um, uh, it is about having boundaries and being manageable um, with those different roles. Because, you know, I don't have children. And when you talk about, you know, I still need to find something that lights me up. I'm like, but why wouldn't children light you up? Because I just don't have that comprehension of what it's like to have children um and I I just wish there was a great ideal that we can work towards where women can have their children and have careers and apply themselves to something they're passionate about if it's not children I mean just so many different women seem so different from each other and I don't know what the golden Mm solution is yeah it's, it's all personal isn't it it's down to what you value you know in, in your life is family you know some like children something you want or you know is it like you're you finding your own way for us you know having that almost like a peace of mind that okay you're going to be okay and then you have children I, I didn't have that I navigated parenthood you know in kind of like the throes of like existential anxiety and so that made me quite depressed for many years you know and children do like you up they're very cute when they're small but they're also incredibly hard work you know you it's a sacrifice and I wasn't fully prepared for it and that's why I was a little bit like unsure about where where I should be but I I I love my children but just having children enough like just having children alone wasn't enough for me you know when you have this brain that's constantly thinking of things and new ideas and new things that you want to do you know, I, I like to have both, like have my cake and eat it, but there is always something that has to give. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's why um, I never had children, because uh, when I was younger, I thought to myself, I can't possibly put all of what I'm doing to one side um, in order to be selfless for children and so I never ended up having them but once I started to find my stride with balancing all the different roles of my life like I felt a bit more settled I felt more focused I felt more you know I get to an age where you know time has run out to have children and so I I think I will live in perpetual bafflement about how women are supposed to have it all without having what you experience, which is like the anxiety and the, oh my God, what am I doing? And how do I do this time? Um, I just hope that we get to a point uh, where 
we are supported. And it sounds like your husband is supportive. And I think that is probably the solution is to actually support women in trying to have it all because to do it in an unsupportive environment is pretty much impossible. And it leads to sort of like emotional and mental well-being, um, you know? No, you're, you're completely right. You know, like I have friends who the, you know, husband prefers to just do all the career bit and then the wife has to stay at home. And I can tell that she's so like unsatisfied, you know, deep down because she wants her, you know, her herself, the, the bit that's just her to thrive as well. That bit has to wait, you know, while she looks after three children. Yeah, that will all have different needs. So it's it's a sacrifice. I'm, I'm, yeah. Uh, yeah, unless you have childcare, you know, and, and you don't mind, you know, let, letting your nanny look after your child, you know, but it's all personal choice, really. All the support of men, like honestly, like it's not unmanly to be supportive of a woman. Um, you know, I just, I think it's extremely masculine to, to be supportive of women. Um, and and all the things they want to do. So yeah, just throwing that out there as a comment because yeah. where else would you get to say that? Conversations <laughs> like this. So we're running out of time, but I would love to hear your sort of solutions slash advice slash. This is what I've learned from all my experiences so far as to how to be an empowered woman doing all the things that she wants to do in her life like what what do you think is the secret source to having it all um given what you've been through and with hindsight yeah so this is a very interesting question because anyone can do anything they want if they put their mind to it, right? And if the environment is right for you and you get the support, but ultimately you gotta do what you want, you know, because we have one life, right? And I talked about, for me, I might be motivated differently to other people because I have an interest-based nervous system and that I need to do things that make me feel alive. You know, so we go down to where do you visualize, you know, yourself to be in your life? You know, some of us might want to be CEOs growing huge companies. Some of us might prefer to just be, like a solopreneur, you know, like a speaker or like an author, and that makes you happy. But some of us might, you know, choose very different journeys where we have more project-based work. Um, so ultimately it's going to be different, but what do you value, you know, in your life? And for me, it was creative freedom of expression and recognizing that and identifying that, you know, at the age of 40, that helped me own what I'm doing and stay on the path that is not going to deviate. You know, so for me, I needed to know um, where I'm going. And, and, and that was like in, enough for me just to know what my values are. So whatever opportunities I come across in life, as long as they align with my values, you know, then, then it's okay. I, I will take them on. Mm, yeah, I think that is such uh, an insightful um, piece of advice because um, I completely agree with you. It's really important to have a clear idea of what you want in life and to be happy with what you've chosen because with every choice comes a sort of sacrifice of something you know and um 
I would add to that um, to not be afraid to surround yourself with people who encourage, support, and believe in you. Because um, I totally relate to a lot of the experiences you've had, but it's so much easier when you're surrounded by people that get you. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we I think both you and I have had beginnings where we were kind of plunged into situations where we were around people that didn't get us. And in that environment, we've learned to find our own way. And so we get us, because I think from what I've heard of you, the problem was that we didn't understand ourselves, right? Yes. Exactly. And you're so right to say that you should surround yourself with people who get you and is going to champion you and maybe sponsor you. Because like the very reason you feel like you aren't understood because maybe you're an outlier yourself, you know, and you're looking in, seeing like how things could be improved. But then there are several other outliers amongst us that we're going to gravitate towards each other, right? And you're right, like in a recent hurdle that I had, I caught my one of my oldest friends, you know, and someone who's going to be unchanged by whatever I am in my life, he's still going to love me for who I am. And, you know, he's always my center compass and I can call him anytime. So yeah, having that person in your life is really important. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like you've had a few of those, like, you know, you mentioned your biology teacher, you know, people that um, I guess just provide unconditional love for want of you know more descriptive word I mean it's just uh people that accept us for who we are and people that uh believe in us maybe even before we learn to believe in ourselves completely Um, yeah that is so important it's good for the self-esteem for sure especially when you're young you know yeah I mean Samantha it's been so amazing to hear just a very thin slice of um, your experiences. I feel like we have hours and hours of uh, chat to have one day if we ever get the opportunity because there's so much to to learn um, from each other's experiences and to kind of identify with. Um, But for this short uh, episode of innovation and esteemed it's been amazing to hear your experiences you've been so inspiring um through your honesty but also your your knowledge of the fact that all of your experiences have been so important in 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 forging a path in life Um, so thank you thank you for sharing so much of yourself with us today well, thank you so much for, you know, being such a great like interviewer, you know, you really picked up the bits, you know, that will be really relevant to your audience and the bits that people would want to know more about, you know, you're great and, and also such an empowering person yourself, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just listening to you and I just thought, you know, like you have everything that you need to, you know, thrive and if anyone's saying otherwise, you know, it's, it's usually for a reason and you know just stick to your course right listen to your own intuitions yeah well it's because of conversations like this that have helped me find my own way um because i think you know as you know with storytelling um finding common experiences can really uplift each Mm -hmm. other for sure Uh, 
So if anyone was to find out more about what you're doing and, and to learn more about your content, where would they go? Yeah, so I, I'm, I am on all the social media channels, but uh, if you want to find out more about me, go to my website called adhdgirls.co.uk. I'm also on LinkedIn um, as Samantha Hugh, and I have a company page called ADHD Girls as well. So come and look for me. I'm very fuchsia and black in my website and my branding, so you can't miss me. Fuchsia and black. <laughs> Thanks for listening and please do subscribe to this podcast and maybe even rate and review it if you can. The more ratings and reviews and the more interest from those trusty algorithms, which could help to increase the reach of this show. And you can watch the video recording of this conversation on YouTube on my new series called Esteemed. It's all about self-discovery, self-evolution and inclusivity on innovation. Let's all strive to be in the best versions of ourselves and celebrate others being themselves too. As always, be kind and loving, and I wish you all a great week.